Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Radio Free Mormon, how are you? William Real, how are you? What's your middle name, by the way? Say that again. Your middle name? Joseph. William Joseph Real. He shall, be named, he shall be named after his father, Joseph. That was my dad's middle name was Joseph, too. I could be a prophet if I wrote a book myself and put that in there. Well, I think the book that was written may refer to you. That's 2 Nephi chapter 3, I believe. Man, you you got your scripture mastery down, my friend. You know what you're talking about. Just nobody checks, so we'll just pretend they know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Love it. So we had a t-shirt contest, didn't we? Yes, we did. By the way, there's been some comments about what t-shirt I'm going to be wearing. It looks like everybody got it wrong. No, I'll let you guess who this this is. Look at that, the Guardians of the Galaxy. I don't know what the raccoon's name is, but I've seen the movie. You don't, and you, you've seen the movie and you don't know the raccoon's name? By the way, I think mm. you'd be offended if you called him a raccoon, I'm just saying. Now, he's not from planet Earth, right? He's from some other planet, but somehow he evolved in another planet with their own environment into a, into a raccoon. I, I can't remember. I don't know his backstory. I'm still not mentioning his name for anybody who wants to guess. But I have a feeling he was the result of some kind of science experiment gone horribly wrong. Well, at least he can tell you about it now. Yeah, he can talk. He's a talking raccoon. <laughs> so, yeah, you got a little bit of a superhero shirt. That's, the Guardians of the Galaxy were a little late in the uh, in the superhero universes for me. They kind of hard to get attached to them. They came in so late. Oh, they're so great. But anyway, I know that we I know time's ticking. We've got T-shirts to talk about. We've yeah, got yeah, a great show to I'm talk about I'm always just trying tonight. to play along with your intros. So Yes, I'm just saying it's not Wolverine, nor is it Captain America. No, no, no. Let me pull. Uh, let me pull this off, and we'll put that up. So the we're, we'll give you guys. In fact, I'll go into the comments here, and I will share the link there. And then sometime during the show tonight, I'll edit our YouTube synopsis, and I'll put the link there as well. But this is the first one. We got it down to three final ones. We reached out to several folks uh, who had kind of finalists. There were lots of T-shirt ideas that were really good. Um, some of them we really liked. We just didn't think they were quite what we wanted to be on a shirt. And so we narrowed it down to three. And now we're looking to each of you to vote. And so this is the, the first one. And then you'll see the two logos there. Mormonism Live, better than touching your own little factory. Notice the faces of Bill and RFM and Maven in the, in the little gears. Um, and then Mormonism Live uh, with a microphone. That'll be the front of the shirt with the... Other one being the back. Here is image number two. Um, there's that one. And uh, we like all of these. And there's a shirt with that on there. And if you go to the link that we put into the uh, comments, you'll see a chance to vote on all three of those as well as you'll see images of them on shirts. And you can kind of weigh which one you like the best. And then here's the third of them. A higher standard of truth, a podcast for truth seekers. And there it is on a shirt. And so if folks will, uh, whoop, if folks will reach out and, uh, 
and cast their votes and uh, we can we can see which t-shirt wins from all of the viewers over the course of this week if you're listening to the podcast audio you of course didn't see any of that you're going to have to go find a synopsis of this episode either on the websites or youtube you'll have the link there and uh, we'll give you guys one week to vote and we'll announce the winner next week and you've already said how it is people go about voting yeah so i can even put it up let me uh let me do this. Uh, we'll get rid of that. We'll put this here. And there it is. So Mormonism Live. Let me put it up on the screen. Whoop, add to screen. Ta-da. So Mormonism Live, and you'll see there, uh, Mormonism Live viewers, would you help us select the winning T-shirt? You get the three of them to vote from, and then below you can just see that they're on T-shirts and kind of get a view of what that looks like. Pick one of those three options, hit the submit button, and we should be good. And I'll cast the 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 first vote but not with anybody looking and i'll just make sure it works let's see here i like hmm that one let's see if that worked ta-da your response has been recorded so That's we good. are to maintain, we're rocking the, rolling. to maintain to maintain the appearance of objectivity i will not be voting in this contest yeah yeah i'll subtract one if it's that close there we go <laughs> <laughs> so uh anything from you before we kind of kick this into gear no, not at all. Tonight is your right. night. You've got a really interesting story, little known story from church history, one I had not heard of. A lot of people hadn't heard of this. You hadn't heard of it until you stumbled upon it. No, I, I had not. And then I reached out to you and said, hey, have you ever heard this tale? And you said, nope. And uh, I thought it was interesting enough that it should be recorded in the uh, the annals of Mormon history. So. There it is. Um, let's start off with a little bit of data here. We've got, and then I'll I'll let you know, Maven, when we go to the first slide, I've got them all numbered here. Um, Lucian Woodworth uh, is born in eight, uh, April 3rd of 1799. Who is this Lucian Woodworth person you're talking about? It, exactly. This guy becomes a close associate of Joseph Smith around the year of 1841. He's appointed the aide-de-camp in the Nauvoo Le uh, Legion in May of 41. He's a member of the Nauvoo Masonic Lodge. He's admitted to the Council of 50. That should note how important he is. 11th March of 1844. Travels to Texas to negotiate with Sam Houston in 1844. And he's sent by Joseph Smith to deliver a letter explaining the Latter-day Saint difficulties to Illinois Governor Thomas Ford, 22nd of June, 1844. But he's not the meat of the story. We just have to talk about him Briefly first, because one of his kids is who we're going to get into a long story about. But he married Phoebe Watrous in 1825, and they had at least three children. Maven, if we can put slide number one up. And uh, this is the 1850 census, but we know they had at least three kids. Uh, they are recorded there. Uh, Flora Ann, who you see her. Uh, there, I don't know if there's uh, Flora is the third, the third person solution is wife Phoebe, and then Flora is listed third. She's the oldest of the children that we know of. I, I couldn't find any record of other kids, and this is late, this is 1850, but the best we know, these are the three kids that they had. Um, Flora Ann was born June 12th, 1826, according to one genealogy site, but according to Brian Hale, she was born. November 14th, 1826. Um, and we should note that the Smith family and the Woodworth family were had some closeness. Um, if we can go to slide, and actually, if we can go to the Wilford Woodruff uh, website, Maven, if you've got that one handy. And if not, I will have it as well. And just to clarify, because I get confused, 
This Please. is not Woodruff. Woodworth. Yes, this is not Wilford Woodruff. It's not has a, it doesn't have anything to do with that family, but it's a similar sounding name and I get confused easily. It's Woodworth. Yeah, but I did mention Woodruff because Wilford Woodruff's journals record this next thing that we're going to show. Ah. And uh Yep. So if you scroll down just a little bit on that right column, A little bit further, that next one, there we are. So it looks like it's the March 13th, 1843. And if we make that document a little bigger, it's kind of right in the middle of the document. But it says March 31st, 1843, Friday on the 31st, I spent the afternoon at Mr. And this is Wilford Woodruff's journal. I spent the afternoon at Mr. Lucian Woodworth's in company with Joseph Smith, Hiram Smith, Heber C. Kimball, Orson Hyde, and Brother Chase, with our wives, we had a feast of fat turkey and had a good time. Um, and so there's that. So we have a visit of the Smiths and other leaders of the church to the Woodworth's home, enjoying a, a, a turkey dinner. And uh, and then we have this weird, and we're just going to be kind of laying out a bunch of data points. I wanted to try to keep this as much in chronological order as possible. And so we'll just kind of talk this through, and then there'll be points in the story where there's some serious stuff happening and we'll stop there and talk about it. Um, there's a strange interaction by Flora Woodworth with uh, a suitor, orange white, who happens to be the son of Lyman white. I'm actually going to put that back up and we'll add this. Um, he was, hey, he was, yes, yes, please. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. Had you already mentioned that uh, it is generally believed, including by Brian Hales, that, Flora Ann was married to Joseph Smith in the spring of 1843. Yeah, that's a data point that comes here in just a little bit. Okay, I apologize. I wanted to tease people. No, you're okay. I just want to tease people a little bit before we get into the fact that this is a plural wife of Joseph. So Orange White, kind of a strange name and two colors there. Uh, we talked about maybe he has a sister, Violet, but we don't know that. But this is Orange White, son of Lyman White, uh, who was a sort of influential member in the early church. And this is the story we get from Orange. He says, having just returned from a mission, I concluded to look about and try to pick up one or more, one or more of the young ladies before they were all gone. So I commenced keeping company with Flora Woodworth. We were walking near Joseph's home when he rode up in a carriage and invited us to take a ride. And so uh, he's trying to pick up, you know, Flora, see if maybe they're a good match and uh, either marry her as his first wife or keep her in mind for his second or third. Right. And uh, Joseph Smith comes along and uh, invites them to take a ride. And there's more to the story, but we'll we'll just pause there for a moment. And then we'll note that William Clayton, uh, William Clayton records four or five instances here, actually six. Uh William Clayton says that, uh, let's see here. Let me find my spot. March 31st, 1843, Friday on, 31st of fr um, on the 31st, I spent the afternoon at Mr. Lucian Woodworth's in company with Joseph Smith, Hiram Smith, Heber C. Kimball, Orson Hyde, and Brother Chase with our wives. That's the one we just read. May 2nd, Joseph wrote out with Flora W. So Joseph wrote out with just the daughter. On May 2nd, that date will be important as we get further in. June 1st, evening. This is all William Clayton's journal entries. By the way, this journal 
comes from a secondhand source who's recording things out of the journal. I don't know. People have told me that William Clayton's journals have been made public, but as far as I know, they're still not available. I just talked with Dan Vogel and asked him that very question. He -hmm. says if they have been, he doesn't know about it. And he's been looking, so I don't think they have. So the church has allowed certain historians to reproduce certain parts of those journals, but the journals as a whole are still kept uh, under lock and key. Can I tell you, I don't know the full story on this, but this goes back to the 1980s and the Mormon underground at BYU and surrounding environs. I do not know that it's correct that the church allowed copies to be made. I think people were allowed to see it. They made clandestine copies or transcripts, which were then reproduced after being typed out and then circulated in the underground. And that's pretty much the state of things that we have today. They were collected with some other things and published by George Smith of Signature Books, what was obtained as of that point without the church's aid. And in spite of their um, being very upset about it, uh, there are lawsuits that pursued, excuse me, that ensued over this. So all I'm saying is that this is not something the church allowed to get out. It got out in spite of the church and they still haven't published the journals yet in spite of a lot of clamoring that they do so. Beautiful. And I'll add to that. I've heard from folks directly inside the church history department that certain things that are still kept under wraps and including the William Clayton journals, because again, that was my understanding as well, is that there are things in there that are, would be difficult for believing members to grasp. And we all have to wrestle with why the church maintains the privacy of and confidentiality of certain documents rather than being transparent and putting them out. And when you look over the years, as time has gone forward and more things have been released, those things tend to be very problematic or troublesome, uh, such as the Council of 50 Minutes, for instance. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, where were we at? June 1st, uh, Joseph rode in a carriage with Flora. So again, a second time with just her. August 26th, Hiram and I rode out, rode up to my house and Joseph met Miss, uh, Mrs. Woodworth and Flora and conversed some time. August 28th, President Joseph met Miss Woodworth at my house. August 29th, a.m. at the temple, President Joseph at my house with Miss Woodworth. He sure is visiting her a lot, isn't he? Well, I think Brian Hales had said that of all of Joseph Smith's plural wives, we have more records of Joseph Smith meeting with Flora than any other wife. Any other. You got it. And Joseph seems to be in the picture a lot, but as uh, RFM mentioned, 16-year-old Flora Ann Woodworth has by the spring of 1843 become a plural wife of the prophet Joseph Smith. In the spring of 1843, Joseph Smith was sealed to 16-year-old Flora Ann Woodworth. Uh, This is what Brian has to say about it. A March 4th, 1843 entry in the prophet's diary appears to have been written Woodworth, which is crossed out and is difficult to discern. The name Woodworth appears interlinearly above in shorthand, so it is possible they were sealed that day. Um, And so these visits by, uh, let's go back one, these visits that Clayton records uh, March 4th, 
everything that we're seeing here would have occurred after that ceiling if that date is accurate. So by the time all these visits are occurring, William Clayton almost certainly would know, and we would all gather this now talking about it, that Joseph is visiting uh, pretty regularly with one of his plural wives who happens to be a 16-year-old teenager, Flora Ann Woodworth. Um, any, th any thoughts there on that section? No. Okay. Uh, perfect. So we'll go back to here. So now let's get back to this orange-white story because uh, you mentioned Paul Harvey. I was going to do my Paul Harvey impression. And now you know the rest of the story. Here is the orange-white rest of the story. Uh, you want to read that? Sure, I'd love to. Awesome. Oh, by the way, Thank I do you. want to just add, for anybody who doesn't know about William Clayton, he was the insider in everything that was going on in Joseph Smith's life. He was an absolutely trusted confidant of Joseph Smith, and he kept meticulous records, and he has several journals that he kept. So and, I just want to let people know who he is. Um, and I was going to just say to yeah. RFM, Clayton seems to be very forward when he talks about things. He he makes um he makes references, you know, he's the one who wrote Come Come Ye Saints, right? I have no I idea. So. I think so. I think he's the one who wrote Come Come Ye Saints. Uh, anybody in the in the comments can correct me if I'm wrong, but there are moments where certain uh people among the day nights are seemingly threatening his life and he's very forward about when his life is in danger by believing Latter-day Saints. He seems to be the guy who's willing to like he just thinks it's his job to be honest and tell the full story as much as he can. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and that's why his journals haven't been published by the church yet, one would presume. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> oh, yeah. So this is my part. Orange white. Okay. I was walking along the street with Flora near the prophet's residence when he, Joseph, drove up in his carriage, stopped and spoke to I and Flora. That makes me wince grammatically and spoke to I and Flora and asked us to get in the carriage and ride with him. He opened the door for us, and when we were seated opposite to him, he told the driver to drive on. Okay, so this is one of those carriages that has the seats that face each other, and a driver who's not Joseph Smith or somebody else driving. We went to the Nauvoo Temple lot and many other places during the afternoon, and then he drove to the Woodworth house, and we got out and went in. After we got in the house, Sister Woodworth, which I believe is going to be the mother, Phoebe Woodworth, Sister Woodworth took me in another room and told me that Flora was one of Joseph's wives. I was aware or believed that Eliza R. Snow and the two Partridge girls were his wives, but was not informed about Flora. But now Sister Woodworth gave me all the information necessary. So I knew Joseph believed and practiced polygamy. Now, as a matter of course, I at once, after giving her Flora a mild lecture, left her and looked for a companion in other places and where I could be more sure. I was now called on, I'm sorry, I was now called on a mission to go up the river five or 600 miles to make lumber for the Nauvoo house and temple. What do you make of the story, RFM? And by the way, let me start it off by saying this because I think it'll lead into one of the points you're going to make, which is when I first read this, I thought, oh, man, polygamy must be common knowledge in Nauvoo because this orange white knows that Joseph is with the Partridge girls um, and he's aware of Eliza R. Snow. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? And what are your other thoughts about this story? 
Well, I know his dad is Lyman White, so maybe he's connected a little bit more than the average Latter-day Saint. But I think what he's talking about is I was aware or believed that Eliza R. Snow and the two Partridge girls were his wife. So he's got limited information. It sounds more like rumors than anything solid, but he does believe that it's going on. But he's upset when he finds out, not at Joseph Smith for practicing polygamy, but at Flora for not telling him that she's already married to Joseph Smith. Right. And unless he's made his intentions clear, is she under any obligation to just tell him anything? Like, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Like, well, I think that his position was that she was receptive to his offer to go for a walk. And, of course, that meant a lot more in those days, I think, than maybe yeah. today. This is part of the courtship. And she didn't tell him that she was unavailable, having been married to Joseph Smith prior to this. Yeah, I, I think it's funny that he gives Flora a mild lecture and then immediately the prophet Joseph Smith sends him on a mission five or 600 miles away to, uh, to, to get lumber. Uh, I think for the, what did it say for the Nauvoo house and temple? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, those trees aren't going to cut themselves. Bill. <laughs> My point is don't, don't you mess with the plural white Thomas Marsh learned this the hard way. Don't you mess with the plural wives of Joseph Smith. <laughs> uh, so now we get into this, uh, this story. Um, Emma somehow becomes aware that Flora Woodworth uh, has on her person a gold watch, which she comprehends is the gold watch of her husband, the prophet Joseph Smith. And, uh, and you'll talk in a moment here about a rational explanation for that. But we know this because William Clayton uh, records uh, the following. He says, President Joseph told me that he had a difficulty with Emma yesterday. She rode up to the Woodworths with him and called while he came to the temple. When he returned, she was demanding the gold watch of Flora, and he reproved her for her evil treatment. So the first thing I'm deeply bothered by is that Emma seems to, again, if I'm just going to add a little conjecture, because we don't know for sure how all this happened, but it seems reasonable that Emma is in the dark about this plural marriage. And she's in the dark that this watch has been transferred by from Joseph's possession to Flora's possession. And, and yet William Clayton records that Joseph reproved her for her evil treatment, almost as if Emma has no right to be upset and hurt and betrayed and all the feelings that would come with this happening. And she seems to be painted as like uh not not a not a reasonable person, but I think all reasonable people would be fairly upset if this event happened to them. Any oh, thoughts? I think so. I think so indeed. And uh, it indicates to me that Emma became aware of this when she was at the Woodworth's house. I suggest that because it only appears to be after Joseph picks her up and takes her home. Oh, I'm sorry. You haven't gotten to that part yet, have you? Yeah, yeah we haven't gotten to that part yet. Then yeah. Let me add this part. This is from William Clayton's journal dated August 23rd, 1843. He says, this is what Joseph told me happened yesterday. So that's how we're pinpointing the date of the altercation about the watch between Emma and Flora as to August 22nd, 1843. Yeah. And I'll just note that no, uh, Brian Hales acknowledges this as well, by the way. There's no record that exists of the exact date of the marriage unless we accept this 
obscured journal entry. And there's no date given for the gift giving of the watch. And Brian draws the conclusion, right, that the watch was given uh, as, as a marriage gift after the marriage or sealing takes place. But I think you and I would at least want to acknowledge that it's also v- possible um, because one of the grooming techniques that predators use with children is gift giving. And when you're, if you're a predator and you're trying to uh, reach out and find a vulnerable person and enter a, uh, a sexual relationship with them, often predators are giving gifts. And so I think that while Brian would like to lean on one side of that, I think we would want to balance that, right, with the possibility that could be anything. And we ought to not probably draw conclusions as easily as Brian did. Right. I would say that it is completely up in the air as to when it was that Joseph gave this watch. I'm presuming he gave the watch to Flora and that's how she ended up with it. Uh, Mm. Joseph certainly doesn't tell William Clayton anything that would disabuse us of that notion like that, that lying little hussy, she must have stolen my watch. Yeah, no, no, he doesn't tell us the the full story. Um, No, so uh, it's just as likely that it happened before they were married as after they were married. There's no evidence either way, but you're right. I'm concerned that Brian Hales will come down quite conclusively on the side that Joseph gave it to her after they were married, in spite of the fact there's no evidence either way on the issue. Yeah. And I agree with you, by the way, you, you noted at least in part that uh, she would have learned that Flora had the watch during this visit. I'm assuming, cause you and I were talking about this. I'm assuming that as Joseph goes off to the temple, he's got to ride his carriage there. By the way, I want to say this too. Um, we tell a story, even in this, uh, in this video, we're going to watch later about this other watch. Maybe um, the guy talks about how poor Joseph Smith is. And I just want to note that Joseph Smith rides in a carriage with a driver. And I just want to note that Joseph Smith lives in the Nauvoo Mansion house. And as the story goes on, we're going to see other points of data that point to significant financial influence. And I don't think Joseph Smith was as dirt poor and broke as the leader of the church by the time it gets to Nauvoo, as many people on the inside of the church would like to pretend he was. Is that fair enough? Do you agree with that? Oh, yes, absolutely. He owned all of Nauvoo. Yeah. And we'll see, and we'll see that later. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 No, no, you're good. You'll see that later. I love it. Um, and then just to note as well, I agree with you that it most likely is that Emma discovered the watch when she's at the Woodworth's home when this event's taking place because Joseph leaves in his carriage, goes to the temple, does whatever business he has to do, but let's assume it's at least an hour or two. And, and even if it's a half an hour, when he comes back, he's got to ride back to the house now, the Woodworths. And then when he gets there, this disagreement is happening. All hell is breaking loose, Bill. Yeah. So it didn't, it didn't start when she got there. It started just before he arrived. Right. And I would assume right. that if she were this mad about a watch and she knew about it before she went to the Woodworth home on this date, then she would have been manifesting that in some way to Joseph Smith on the drive out there instead of only after he gets back to pick her up. And I, and I even thought maybe she would keep it a secret, have him, you know, have him drop her off. He'd go to the temple and then she would address it with Flora. If she saw Flora in town with the watch, maybe she wouldn't tell Joseph on the front end. And she wanted to see how Flora explained herself first. 
Um, but as you pointed out, if that was the case, this disagreement almost certainly would have been further in to w- than where it was when Joseph shows up. Yeah, there are always different theories, and that's one. I think the most <laughs> obvious and straightforward one is that she discovered it when she was at the Woodward's yeah. house that day. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, so um, Joseph seems to only figure out that he has been caught, essentially, when he returns to pick up Emma, and she is in the middle of a confrontation with Flora, demanding the watch back. I just want to note, this had to have been embarrassing, rightfully so, for Emma. And I think all of the documentation by Clayton and what we'll read next about Joseph Smith when we get there uh, and how the situation was handled, um, I think there ought to be a lot more compassion from those leaders of the day, as well as uh, believing historians recognizing that Emma probably uh, was more than reasonable in the ways that she handled all of these things as they were coming at her. And in in 1843, in the spring and summer, it was coming at her fast and furious. Mm, Very much so. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Uh, Next, Joseph seems to have a history of giving gold watches to his plural wives. Um, Brian Hales recorded this. The prophet may have given a gold watch to several of his plural wives. That's Brian Hales' comment. Mary Ann Barzee Boyce remembered that she was acquainted with Eliza R. Snowsmith his wife, and saw his gold watch, which she carries, Mary Ann Boyce and John Boyce, Mary Ann Barzee Boyce record. Uh, and you've got the microfilm there, manuscript, uh, page 174. And then we also have a picture of that watch on Wikipedia. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty watch. And the statements about this watch and about other watches is that they were gold watches. And as a, as a pawn dealer, I, I, can't give you a hundred percent solid opinion, but um, I can't confirm for sure. But looking at that, that looks like a gold watch um, that the bezel on it, that the hands, the inside of the watch look like they are gold rather than being some other material. That's got a gold color to it. Um, it looks like really good craftsmanship. And generally these watches would have been not, not cheap. I think I read, or maybe you read too, 25, 30 bucks. Uh, in that day. And that would have been, I don't know, it would have been a lot of money in today's terms, uh, in terms of a gold watch, not necessarily a transfer over from what a dollar was worth then to what a dollar is worth now, but the gold value then versus the gold value. Now you'd be talking about an extremely expensive watch. Uh, Any thoughts here on Eliza R. Snow's watch? For those watching the show, this is actually a photograph that's on its side. And yeah, if I did. I turned it on side. 90 mm-hmm. degrees up. You would see that that's how it's being held in the Church mm-hmm. History Museum for display. But you can see the full watch that was given by Joseph Smith to Eliza R. Snow. I don't know if this was one of his watches that he gave to her or if he bought a watch for her. It is a very, very fancy watch indeed. Um, yeah. And, and, and two, we ought to at least know when Emma's at the Woodworth's home and she sees this watch. There's the original image. When she sees this watch, we don't know if, if Flora is telling her, like if Flora is innocently going like, yeah, of course Emma would know. Why would Joseph keep this a secret? And she proceeds to tell Emma like, yeah, I'm one of his wives too. I'm sure you know that here's what, you know, Joseph gave me. We don't know if she said something or if Emma saw it lying on the counter or whatnot. Or if Flora was wearing it. 
or if Flora was wearing it. Correct. Um, so there's that. Okay, let's um, pick up here. So now let's put that uh, back up. And here's the slide we want to go to. So according to Clayton, the argument that started when Smith showed up on the scene to find Emma in a confrontation with Flora continued on the carriage ride home. And once the Smiths got back to their home, um, and again, this is the, the source that this is all coming from. George D. Smith, an intimate chronicle, the journals of William Clayton, Salt Lake City, Signature Books, 1995, page 119. So you see the quote up there. President Joseph told me he had difficulty with Emma yesterday. She rode up to the Woodworths with him and called while he came to the temple. When he returned, she was demanding the gold watch of Flora. He reproved her for her evil treatment. That's where we left off. On their return home, she abused him much. And also when he got home, he had to use harsh measures to put a stop to her abuse, but finally succeeded. Uh, RFM, any thoughts on what harsh measures might have been? Oh, you're muted, my friend. I did that on purpose because I would hate for an episode to go by where you didn't say that. Um, what harsh measures means? Well, the mind reels with possibilities. Um, it would seem at a minimum that Joseph reproving her for her evil treatment was not sufficient to get her to stop. Mm -mm. Um, and apparently he had to use harsh measures to put a stop to her abuse. But finally, succeeded. So I don't know what those are. I don't know if, if they are physical in nature. Uh, my presumption is probably, but it's impossible to say at this point what harsh measures mean. What are your thoughts on that, Bill? Just like you said, it has to be significantly more than him reproving her for her evil treatment. And uh, it, it could be as much as screaming and yelling and threatening divorce. It could be something as serious uh, as physical abuse. And we are left with no way to conclude what it is other than to know that it escalated further beyond reproving with, uh, reproving her and, um, whatever that is, we'll, we'll never know. And can I just say something? I want to give a shout out to those perspicacious scholars back in the 1980s who were finding this stuff, circulating it, generating it, and by generating, I don't mean making up, but I mean putting it down in typewritten format and then producing it and giving it to different people. Because this is the one source, William Clayton's diary, that we have for this story. And if it weren't for them, we would not know about it at all. And we would yeah. not be able to have this podcast on this subject tonight. So I think they deserve a shout out. I know that Brent Metcalf was involved in some of that. I think that Tim Rathbone, who's a listener to the show, was also involved in that. And there are others, and I don't mean to be rude or anything by failing to mention them. Yeah. And, and as you, uh, somebody's also noting, it could be something like threatening damnation, which he does, for instance, in section 132, if Emma doesn't go along with polygamy. Again, I only would want to note that it seems significantly more escalated than reproving her, whatever that means. All right. Um, what are harsh measures? This speaks volumes about how Emma might feel in this situation, obviously feeling disregarded, how she isn't seen as having a right to her hurt and anger. I just want to note that because this is the 1840s. Um, there are certain ways that society 
uh, sees women and treats women. And, and even that, even to this day, some of that still follows, but it seems to me her reaction knowing this data was extremely reasonable. And yet every inside, you know, insider baseball document here, any, any insider language seems to paint Emma as the problem. And there's no real honest discussion about what Joseph Smith is doing behind her back and how, how inappropriate it was to treat her the way he did and, and to keep her on the outside of all these things. Um, and then I want to note too, this was, I had this topic picked a few weeks ago, but you guys over the last couple of weeks have covered this conversation with Tyler on, uh, on David Bednar and Bednar makes the argument. There's two arguments uh, that Bednar, Bednar makes. One is that these women pursued Joseph and the, uh, and the other was that these are adoptions right. and not marriages or ceilings for marriage purposes. Um, your two cents RFM before I share mine. Any thoughts there on what David Bednar's statements do up against this data? I think that was an unfortunate statement by Elder Bednar. But uh, what he did say was that the women were approaching Joseph Smith and not the other way around because everybody wanted to get sealed to that handsome rogue to make sure they had the e-ticket to the pearly gates. As his, as his adopted daughters. Uh, right, except... Why do you have to adopt a wife? You adopt children. You don't ad- adopt spouses. Yeah. That's what we He's have just, marriage for. Clayton's just recording five or six visits by Joseph to, to visit his adopted daughter. Mm, yeah, it's really quite heartwarming. <laughs> so just to note to the LDS church, because you and I both know the SCMC keeps a good eye on the show. Uh, to the SCMC, you might want to let David Bednar know that the idea that these were uh, adoptions doesn't really hold up to this story. And even worse, if we look at Lucy Walker or Nancy Rigdon in the happiness letter, uh, if we look at the Partridge sisters, um, it would, it would be inappropriate for an apostle of the Lord to point to these as being uh, uh, child adoptions rather than uh, intimate relationships that are marriages of some sort or another. And we can debate whether they involve sex or not, but at the very least that these are marriages. Otherwise, this data doesn't seem to really make much sense. And then to note like um, that it seems pretty obvious from all of these stories that Joseph Smith is the hard pursuer of these young girls. Yeah, I think that uh, the most charitable reading that I can give to Elder Bednar's statement is that he was conflating uh, the time after Joseph Smith's death when they were having spiritual adoptions and there were a lot of women who wanted to be sealed to him, as well as men wanted to be sealed to him because there was this whole dynastic idea that if you're part of Joseph Smith's family, he's definitely making it to the celestial kingdom. And so is everybody else who's sealed to him. And that's why there was the big rush. But what Elder Bednar may have been doing was taking that situation after Joseph Smith's death and unfortunately applying it to the situation before Joseph Smith died. Yeah. All right. Um, according to, uh, let's see here, Seymour B. Young, we're going to ask the question here of what happened to the watch. And uh, so Seymour B. Young recalled in 1912 that Emma destroyed the watch. Quote, the name of the prophet's plural wives included Flora Woodward. He spells it wrong, of course. Uh, with the SIC noting that, to whom he is said to have given a gold locket or watch, which was stamped underfoot by Emma. And that's in Seymour B. Young's journal. 
But RFM, are we a hundred percent sure this watch is uh, is destroyed and gone? No, not at all. I mean, we, first off, we have to look at Seymour Young and wonder exactly what his basis of knowledge is. He spells it's late; it's nineteen twelve that he's recounting this. So, Flora Woodworth, he gets her last name wrong, spells it Woodward, and he's not even sure if it's a gold watch. It's hazy to him. He says it was uh, given a gold locket or watch, which was stamped underfoot by Emma. So I don't know what his basis of knowledge for this is. It is the only evidence of any kind that I think we found as to what happened to this particular watch, although there may be an interesting lead elsewhere. Yeah, and I thought we'd put that up on the screen now. We'll play a little video, and then RFM will let you talk about some of the data that you've been trying to track down on this watch. And, it was uh, prophesied that Joseph Smith is. would be known for good and evil all over the world, and he faced a tremendous amount of opposition almost immediately from the time he recounted the first vision to people. He was challenged and persecuted for his beliefs. And he faced numerous lawsuits, dozens and dozens. And on one of those occasions, he needed to post bail. And the only thing that he had of value with him was a pocket watch. And I have it here. <laughs> this is a pocket watch. It's quite heavy. It's a gold pocket watch. It had quite a bit of value. A pocket watch like this would have cost 25 to $30. So this is a gold-plated pocket watch, very nice for the time. With a value of $30, that lets you know that the average person, a day laborer, would have had to work about a month to afford this. In all likelihood, this would have been a gift to the prophet because he was rarely had an abundance of money. This, it's hard to see, but it's J.S. Jr. Joseph Smith Jr. And then on here, it also is J.S. Jr. But this is a watch, um, something that Joseph had to give up to post bail, and he never had the funds to reacquire this watch. And so by the mid-1840s, this watch was gone, and it... It's taken a different um, trail over the years where it's been, but it left the Smith family probably by 1843. So uh, what are your thoughts, RFM? Because whatever you don't say, I'll share, but say whatever you want. Like, there's a lot of problems here. <laughs> yeah, this is really an interesting story. First off, it's a watch. And I was able to find this little clip out of a longer film. It's around two hours long. It was produced a couple of years ago. The title of the movie, and it's available on YouTube, is Restoration Artifacts. And so the point of the whole thing is they go through different items, right, associated with church history, and they tell a little story associated with the item. And that's why they have this two-minute part here with um, Reed Moon, and he shows this pocket watch that he has, which apparently was Joseph Smith's. It has his initials on the back. And he says it went out of the family's possession in 1843. Now, 1843 is a long year. It's got 365 days in it. Okay. 
But it's really interesting that we've got this watch. And by the way, this was when I found this, this answered a question, which we had had, at least gave a good answer. I don't know if it's the answer, right? But how was it that Emma was able to identify a pocket watch that Flora had as being Joseph Smith? And the answer would apparently be because it had his initials on the back. <laughs> and it looks a lot like that one, doesn't it? I mean, it's almost like. I, I don't see it as that similar to that one. That, this one looks so much more fancy. And you're showing the one he gave to Eliza R. Snow. Yeah. I, I, how many watches in 1843 did Joseph Smith have? Well, that's the other question. <laughs> I don't know how many gold watches Joseph Smith has. Is he like this guy in the street corner with the the trench coat and he opens it up and he's got, you know, hundreds of watches <laughs> on each side and he's selling them on the street corner. I don't expect that he has a whole lot of gold watches with his initials in it. And this raises the question. We're going to talk about a few more interesting points on this story, which I don't understand. I've talked to Brent Metcalf and Brent Metcalf knows Reed Moon. So he's reached out to Reed Moon to ask some questions because Brent Metcalf also has the same questions that I have and additional information. I'm going to wonder here, ultimately, whether this watch that Reed Moon just showed us is the watch that Joseph Smith gave to Flora. I don't know. But let's just say that um, if there's only one watch that Joseph Smith had in 1843, that's it. If he had two watches in 1843, then maybe 50-50 it's it. So the fewer watches he has, the greater the odds that's the one. And if it's not, if this isn't the one, then then Eliza R. Snow's watch is a second watch, and Flora Woodworth's watch is a third watch. So we're talking about three watches almost assuredly all in the year 1843 then. Which one's the first watch? Oh, I'm sorry, the one that, that uh, Reed Moon said he posted his bail. Yeah, so Reed Moon, the first watch, Flora Woodworth's watch, which got stamped underfoot if – all stories are telling the truth. And then Eliza R. Snow's watch, which is in under the church history department's care. And so there's at least three watches that Joseph Smith gave out in 1843. One of them to post bail because he doesn't have enough money. Right. Yeah. And this is the first <laughs> thing that struck me, me about this story is that it seems strange to me. Number one, that Joseph Smith is going to be posting any kind of bail whether it's a watch or cash in 1843, because by then Nauvoo with the Nauvoo city charter had been in full swing for quite a while. And I think we're all familiar with the stories of when the lawmen from Missouri crossed over the river and put the habeas gravis on Joseph Smith, then the Nauvoo municipal court had the power of habeas corpus. And what that means in English is the judge or the magistrate of the municipal court would force the people who grabbed Joseph Smith to bring Joseph Smith before the court. That's what habeas corpus means, produce the body, right? So produce him, and then the magistrate would review the paperwork that was used in order to arrest Joseph Smith and would summarily find it insufficient and free Joseph Smith. So he never had to post bail in any of those circumstances because he was simply released by the magistrate. So that part is strange to me, and I don't know what documentation Reed Moon has to support this story. I've also got to tell you this other thing. I'd never heard this story before about Joseph Smith posting a gold watch 
as Baal. Now, that doesn't really mean anything because there's probably thousands of things in church history that I've never heard of before. It's a vast, deep and complex subject. So I let Google be my friend. And I did a number of Google searches with different uh, search terms. I was unable to find any reference anywhere to a story about Joseph Smith using a gold watch to post as bail. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I couldn't find it. I know Brent Metcalf looked for it. He couldn't find it either. So this is a big mystery as to why Reed Moon is recounting this story. The other thing that was about it to me strange is that he's treating the story about Joseph Smith posting bail using his watch as if it's a pawn shop. And you know something about pawn shops, right? Yeah, you post a thing, Well, you hawk them and you, yeah. you get some money for them. And then your idea is hopefully within the prescribed period of time, you're able to come back with the full amount and redeem it or get it back. Right. Yeah. That's you. That's pawn shop imagery. If it's a legal case and Joseph Smith has to post bail, then if the watch is accepted as bail, then he's freed on bail and he will get the watch back at the conclusion of the case without having to buy it back. It's bail. It's just supposed to secure his appearance at future court hearings. So that part is odd to me. I don't claim to be an expert on the law in 1843 in Illinois, but it seems strange. And when I brought this story up to Brent Metcalf, he raised another interesting issue, which is, why is, I'm sorry, I have to look down at my notes. Why is Reed Moon talking about Joseph Smith being so poor and not having access? Oh, wait a second. Dan Vogel is, I talked with him right before the show, Dan Vogel. So he's saying, Joseph left his watch and other property in security and we returned home to Kirtland. Now that'd be Kirtland, Ohio. So that's the 1830s. Church Historian's Office, Brigham Young History Drafts, published in Deseret News in 1858. So that's yeah, I'd want to know more, Dan, if you you know why the 1858 year and what that connects to. We'd love a, an explanation of that because it's hard to put that in context with that date. Right. And then it raises the issue is why is Henry Reed? And there may be answers to this. These are just questions that we have right now is why is Henry Reed saying Joseph Smith? I said Henry Reed. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting my Mormons confused. Why is Reed Moon? Why is Reed Moon saying Joseph Smith couldn't get the money together to get the watch back? But then it leaves the family hands, the Smith family hands around 1843, which is the whole year we're talking about, which is way after Kirtland. So I don't know the answers to those things. And Dan, of course, is now being doing research in the minute since I talked to him and coming up with all sorts of things. Joseph Smith's attorney Perkins subsequently charged Smith a dollar for time and trouble with Holbrook about a watch. And that's 1837. That's July. So I think Dan's point is that there are lots of watches. And and as you're pointing out, like Reed Moon is is just creating a mythological story because Joseph Smith sure as hell could have gotten out of the predicament he was in and then get money from almost anybody in Nauvoo to pay to get the watch back. Well, can I say, I you know, Reed Moon, I think he's a respected collector. I don't expect he's making this up out of whole cloth. I don't know if this is a story that was passed along with the watch as some kind of family tradition. It doesn't appear to have been published about anywhere for um, posting the watch and then leaving the family's hands in 1843. Maybe Dan Vogel is on to a lead there. But this is what I brought up to Brent Metcalf. And he says, 
I don't understand why Reed Moon is saying that Joseph Smith didn't have access to money. He could have gotten 25 to 30 bucks just from the red brick store. And that on top of the fact that he owns all of Nauvoo, because the idea of having a corporation soul, which is what we have in the church now where President Nelson owns everything, is not a recent innovation. Joseph Smith was the sole trustee and trust for the LDS church back in Nauvoo as well. And as such, he owned all the plots in Nauvoo. Yeah, and, and again, we're talking about the third watch at least. If Reed Moon's telling the truth and Seymour Young understands the truth about that other watch, um, we're talking about three watches that Joseph Smith has. This, it seems like he's got plenty of them. Um, he's got a carriage with a driver. Again, as you pointed out all the data you did, he's living in the mansion house. To paint Joseph Smith as a poor man who lost his favorite watch just doesn't seem to really be accurate. Yeah, I think the time that Joseph Smith was the least penurious was probably in Nauvoo. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll see more of that here shortly. Um, and so maybe that's the watch. And uh, and if not, then you have to wonder, as Brian Hale says, Joseph may have given watches as gifts after marriage or... Uh, gifts before as a predatory tool again i don't mean to say that but i do um if he did it before the marriage sure say it a lot for somebody who doesn't mean to say it well i've listened to enough of these young women's stories to think that all the mechanisms that a sexual predator uses are generally found within the various stories of these young girls with joseph smith and uh there's a lot of smoke if you're going to tell me there's not a fire and i'm i, I don't i can't be conclusive right but my hunch is that's where the that's what the smoke is telling us. Um, right, and apparently Joseph Smith gave more than just watches to his plural wives. Is that correct? Um, I don't know. I, I know Emma had that watch too. By the way, this ties into that new picture of Joseph Smith when Emma passed down a, a locket, and there was data in the document that talked about that picture that also said that there were watches, and they weren't sure if it was a locket or a watch, and the guy had trouble opening it up, and. Um, just to recognize, like, it's not just three watches we're talking about, but there's seems like there's a lot of them. Anyway, what were you going to, what are the other things he gave these women? I, I, Although I this, STI or about, what are we talking? <laughs> I'm not talking about social diseases. Okay. okay I'm trying right, to do a segue right. into the next part of your, your outline. <laughs> all right. So, uh, uh, Flo well, I don't, I don't know where you're going, but I'll see if this leads into it. So, okay. uh, we'll get there eventually. Is, is it a coincidence or women scorned? Flora apparently had a serious life event the very next day after the confrontation. Uh, the marriage, let's see if I can find this here. Yeah, and this seems to be more than apparent. This is documented. Yeah. Flora marries Carlos Gove the very next day after the confrontation to Emma. Marriage of Flora Woodworth, Carlos Gove, August 23rd, 1843. Marriage Index of Hancock County. This we may not be able to be conclusive on either, but any thoughts from you on what's going on here? Well, no. What we seem to know from the documents that we do have is that there was a big row between Emma and Flora over this watch on August 22nd of 1843. And the very next day, Flora runs off to Carthage, the county seat, 
and gets married civilly to this fellow named Carlos Gove. Now, I don't expect that Carlos just suddenly appeared out of nowhere on August 23rd or August 22nd. I expect that she knew him, he knew her, there was some interest on his part expressed toward her, sort of like orange white, right? And then they end up getting married civilly the very next day, which is remarkable. Now, this would not be the first time that Joseph Smith had used a marriage in order to give himself plausible deniability on his plural marriages. It was in April of the same year, four months before August, that Joseph Smith famously conducted a sham marriage of one of his plural wives, who was Sarah Ann Whitney. And she was becoming of age, so suitors were coming by, and she has to keep rebuffing them, and she starts, it starts looking weird, right? She's not going out with anybody. She's staying by herself, which she feels she needs to do because she's married to Joseph Smith. But it is starting to look odd. It's starting to raise eyebrows. So Joseph Smith has her engage in a sham wedding with another Joseph, but his last name is Kingsbury. We've talked about this in a previous episode, so I'm just synopsizing it here. Yeah, yeah. And the idea was that Kingsbury's wife had died. So he's a widow at this point. And Joseph Smith induces him to engage in this sham wedding with Sarah Ann Whitney so that people will realize she's not on the market anymore. And it won't be strange that she's not going out with guys who are asking her out because now she's married. Right. He induces Joseph Kingsbury to do this by promising him that he will be able to be sealed eternally to his deceased wife, mm-hmm. which is one of the, if not the very first mention of sealings, marriage sealings, with the deceased by proxy. Yeah. And we do get Helen Mark Kimball saying something about this wedding. She says a young man boarding at her father's house after the death of Joseph, not a member of the church had sought her hand in time, won her heart in a reckless moment. She was induced to accept his offer and they eloped to Carthage accompanied by a young lady friend and were there married by the justice of the peace. And I just want to know, and she's speaking of uh, Flora Woodworth and Carlos Gove, but as you and I are noting, the date of the marriage is while Joseph is still alive. And so we shouldn't give any deep credibility to what Helen Marr remembers. Uh, This would have been, uh, I think this would have been late. What is this? 1884? Yeah. Yep. 1884. So this is late and her facts are wrong enough that we shouldn't trust this story very well. Um, and, you know, the other thing is Brian Hale says something about this. He says the level of friendship between Gove and Flora prior to their legal marriage is unknown, but it is probable. And I don't know why he says probable because that seems misleading, but at least possible that Emma encouraged the nuptial. And he uses as his evidence for this that uh, Emily Partridge recalled Emma, quote, once proposed to a young man to ask Eliza, uh, Emily's sister, Uh, Partridge, to take a ride with him. Emily Dow Partridge Young, incidents in the early life of Emily Emily Dow Partridge. Emma's trying to get these women out of the way, at least in this instance, according to this remembrance. Emma's trying to get these young girls out of Joseph Smith's way by getting them married off to someone else who then they would just no longer be around for Joseph. And at least seems to do it in the one instance of 
Eliza Partridge and Brian Hales perceives that that is enough reason to think Joseph Smith might be doing this on multiple occasions or Emma might be doing this on multiple occasions, I should say. And I, I want to stop short of that, but at least acknowledge that there is at least one piece of data that would suggest that's a possible uh, way to see the evidence. Right. And the, the twist in this between the sham marriage with Joseph Kingsbury and Sarah Ann Whitney in April of 1843 is that regardless of what Helen Mark Kimball may have gotten wrong, she did get the fact right that Carlos Gove was not a member of the church. So presumably Joseph Smith would not be able to exercise the influence over Carlos Gove that he had over Joseph Kingsbury, who was a faithful member of the church. Yeah. And doesn't it seem odd? I mean, it's the very next day. So uh, Emma goes to the house. She discovers the watch. She has a confrontation with Flora. Joseph comes and rebukes her. She is uh, giving him, I forget what the exact wording was, but she's basically laying it into him all through the evening on the carriage ride home and back at the house. Abuse, I think is the word. What's that? I think abuse was the word. She abused yeah, he him. Abused, yeah, she abused him. And then, and then he uses harsh measures to finally get it quiet. And the very next day, uh, Flora Woodworth goes off with Carlos Gove and gets married. That doesn't, that seems like whatever happened, it's not a coincidence. It seems precipitous. Yeah, they, I don't know which one's causation or correlation, but those two events are connected one way or another. <laughs> yeah, at a minimum, Carlos doesn't come out of nowhere. Maybe he was boarding at her dad's house, which is the house she's living in. She has to come to know him some way. Apparently, she recognizes there's interest from him to her, probably some from him, from her to him. But after this happens, it is boom. We're off to the justice of the peace the next day. And possibly Flora Ann Woodworth, Flora Ann Woodworth uh, was so taken aback, traumatized, whatever you want to call it, by her encounter with Emma that she says, okay, I've had enough of this. Forget about this. I'm going to go marry somebody else of my choosing. And that someone's going to be you, Carlos. Let's hit the trail right now to Carthage. Yeah. And Joseph, based on what some of these remembrances were of the younger wives that Joseph pursued, they were, they tended to be pretty good looking. Uh, there were a lot of uh, journal entries about, you know, uh, Helen Marr would share a comment about this one and another one of this women would share a comment about the other one. But there's a lot of comments about them being uh, fairly good looking. And so I don't know that Carlos would have had probably a, a big problem if he enjoyed her company, enjoyed her personality. And who knows uh, who knows what led to that? And as Brian Hales points out, maybe maybe Emma tried to persuade her to do something. Um, we'll never know that either. So there's a lot of loose ends in these, in this uh, story with all the tangents that uh, accompany it, but it doesn't end there. There are certain things that we know and they raise questions that we don't know the answers to at this point, based upon the evidence that we have that's been preserved. And that's one of them. And the other thing is that we might expect that Flora Ann Woodworth, Flora Ann Woodworth would just blow out of the church at that point and say, I've had it. I'm done. I'm going to marry this non-member. We're going to go off and live happily ever after. But that's not what happens. Like Fanny Elgar did. Yes. Very good. Yeah. Okay. And uh, she doesn't though. She insists on following the saints West 
with Brigham Young in 1847, and she persuades her still non-member husband, Carlos, to go with her. Yeah. And I did, I won't show any of it here necessarily, but uh, I did find some paperwork that Carlos Gove was a renowned gunsmith uh, among the Mormons as he's moving around with his wife, with the Mormons. Uh, He was very well known, made very good firearms, and was, uh, and his, um, his his credibility uh, as a gunsmith extended far beyond uh, just the saints. Uh, and there are documents out there. If somebody goes out and, and Googles Carlos Gove and gunsmith, you'll find a bunch of stuff that he was uh, a well-known gunsmith in his day. And it's, and it's obvious that he's the one because it mentions his wife, Flora in the document. So we know, right. it's, we know it's the right Carlos Gove. That was a great and, find by you, by the way. Yeah. And so I've added that to the resource notes as well. Folks want to kind of go off on that tangent. And then we kept digging and we found even more things like this story is already strange enough. um, But we're going to put up on the screen right now. I believe this is it. So what we end up with here is a land deed from Joseph Smith to uh, Lucian Woodworth, the father. And there's nothing out of place about this deed, by the way. I don't I don't think anything strikes me as being odd. I would. But we should at least note that Joseph Smith gave, uh, sold some land to Lucian. It looks like in exchange for $250. Right. And um, by the way, notice not- we're going to be doing a lot of deeds tonight, just briefly. But it's always Joseph Smith because he's the one who owns all the property. He is the trustee and trust, sole trustee and trust for the church. Yes. And so this deed doesn't seem out of, out of place at all. But as I kept looking, the very next deed, and uh, maybe I'll let you put that up on the screen. I'm, I don't know if it's the other document down below or if it's on that same screen that you've got there. I want the one to Flora. And by the way, this this deed to the family, to Lucian, is May 31st, 1843. May 31st, 1843, lot three, and it was B, I think, 120. And so here we have a deed to Flora and Woodworth. Now, this is a 16-year-old girl who's getting a piece of land. She ends up with L3, and we'll get to the plots here in a moment and at least see a map of that. But L3, B142, and uh, I don't know if we can see it there, but I know that the price of this one, it says that Joseph received in hand $1,000. And you and I were looking this up, $1,000 in 1843 would translate to just over $40,000 in today's money. RFM, what's the likelihood that a 16-year-old girl handed Joseph Smith $1,000 for a piece of land in 1843? Remote. Remote. So my hunch is, and I, I can't prove this, but my hunch is that because he is a plural wife, she is a plural wife of his. Joseph gives her this land, does all the documentation. But again, we're 1843. Nobody's filling out a, uh, a 1043. Nobody's filling out a 990. Nobody's filling out, you know, a W9. Um, all of this stuff is word of mouth, handshake, and a little bit of ink on paper, but really no way to track all this stuff down. Um it seems as though Flora gets a piece of land separate from her family getting a piece of land and that her land is worth four times the amount of her father's piece that he gets with $1,000 paid in hand. 
Yes. Uh, if I can say a couple of things about this, Ben Please. Park, who's quite the authority on Nauvoo and the Mormons in Nauvoo, makes the comment in relation to a land deed given to somebody else, um, Sarah Ann Whitney, <clears throat> for $1,000. It's the same kind of thing from Joseph Smith that she probably did not have that money and that this was simply, simply something that was put in the document in order to make it legal. Right. Okay. Um, in I'm other words, there move. needs to be some kind of something of value that changes hands in order for this to be valid. And so you put down whatever number you want. I mean, you're familiar with uh, buying used cars, right? And how sometimes yeah, yeah. the actual value of the car or what's paid for the car doesn't end up on the bill of sale, if you know what I mean. Ahem, yeah. ahem. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So there's no reason to think that really she gave $1,000. In fact, it would be unlikely that she did. And yet $1,000 there. But the other thing that Ben Park said was that $1,000 was a little bit more than the average price of land in Nauvoo at the time. So what I take from that is that $1,000 is an approximation of the actual value of the land at the time. That'd be like $40,000 for a building lot today, right? Which doesn't strike anybody as unusual. $40,000 for a building lot. And um, if that's the case, and I think Ben Park knows what he's talking about, it's the $250 for the lot to the family that is abnormally low. Yeah. As opposed to this being abnormally high. So maybe uh, Lucien got a good deal for $250 for his lot. I do want to point out something else, though, okay? Because I think dates are important. The deed for Lucien and the family was May 31st. This deed to Flora Ann Woodworth is on May 13th. May 13th. Of and again, we had the March 4th for the marriage allegedly supposedly so that's 18 days before the deed is done for her father and the family members yeah and i'll put up on the screen here these are this is actually and i I was grateful that this is actually the date kind of what we're looking for but this is 30th of april 1843 and the two circled there are flora is on uh 142 which is the bottom red circle and then the upper red circle there would be the uh father's a uh, lot, one of those four, and then one of those four. And I don't know how up in the top you see one, two, three, four, how they're numbered. Um, but these aren't the only two deeds that kind of caught my eye, RFM. Um, so we ought to note again, the family seems to have got a piece of land much cheaper than the average. And Flora seems to have got a piece of land much more, I shouldn't say that, but a little more expensive than the average uh, on the higher end. But she's not the only one who got a thousand dollar piece of land. Maven, I don't know if you have them, but I do if you don't. Um, if you shake your head, you've got them. Okay, so I'm gonna assume yes. So let's go ahead and put a few of these up. <clears throat> sorry, I'm not sure what it is that you okay, wanted. No, sorry. Let me let me do this then. I can just simply uh, share my screen. And we'll just go through a few of these. So let's uh, note these. So we have we have Flora, plural wife of Joseph Smith, getting a piece of land. We've got – are you going to keep track of numbers for me, RFM? No, I was writing down a note of something that okay. I wanted to add later. Okay. Second one here is Emma Smith. By the way, her piece of land is $10,000. To him in hand 
paid the receipt whereof hereby acknowledged doth hereby grant. This is a poor Joseph Smith, a really poor Joseph Smith that he had to, he couldn't get his watch back. He had to use it to post bail and he just deeded to his wife a property worth in today's terms about $420,000. Right. And of course you understand that's just boilerplate. I, I yeah, I, except I for the it. dollar amount, the other part's boilerplate. I also have to note that even though it says to Emma Smith at the top at all, the et al. includes Emma Smith, Julia M. Smith, Joseph Smith Jr., Frederick G. W. Smith, and Alexander Smith, their heirs and assigns forever. So I think that to characterize this as simply a deed to Emma alone yeah, would not be correct. Family. Thank you. Yeah. It is the family. Um, we're going to, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to say is that I highly doubt all of these people we're about to look at paid Joseph Smith or the church. By the way, this is unethical. Let's talk about this for a moment. If Joseph Smith is acting as the head of the church and he is giving land out for free as favors in his personal life, then what he's doing is unethical. Do you agree? It's good to be the king. Absolutely. I'm not, dis I'm not disputing that he has power to do so. The question is whether it's morally right to use your office in a business in order to grant personal favors to everyone around you that you've entered into a relationship with. Well, all I can say is that what God commands in one instance may not be what God commands in another instance. He sure does work in mysterious ways. All right. It's so Flora and Emma, now we've got a deed to Patty Bartlett Sessions. Who's that? And uh, that's uh, that's one of Joseph Smith's plural wives as well. Remember, there's Sylvia the Sessions. Was, oh, I thought the name Sylvia was Sylvia Sessions and Patty Bartlett. Joseph was sealed to both the mother and the daughter. Right, right. <clears throat> I'm playing Ed McMahon to your Johnny Carson. All right, you can feel free. Here we go. So this one is $150, and it looks like it's given to just, just her. All right, we have Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner. Uh. Didn't she save the Book of Commandments? She did. She also was approached as a 12-year-old girl to be the plural wife of Joseph Smith. Someday, little girl. And he patted her on the head, you know. Someday, little girl, you'll be my plural wife. I just wanted um, to know if he smelled her hair. I don't. <laughs> All right. So this one was only $50. I wanted to jump in real quick, if that's Please. okay. Sure. And this is just... Um, um, I believe from LDS discussions, but I, I guess there's some argument as to whether or not this uh, event happened with uh, um, Mary Elizabeth when she was 12 and whether or not there was some kind of like retrofitting, backdating into that to lead into that. I, I, I don't know. I just wanted to at least throw that out there that, that yeah. potentially that story is in question. That's my understanding. Yeah. Uh, RFM, in legal sense, when a person shares a firsthand story that we have no counter evidence to their testimony would be, and they have no reason to doubt them. Their testimony would be a strong source of evidence for their own actions when they're talking about themselves. Correct. You're saying that Mary recounted this about herself when she was yes. 12 as a yeah, She recounts it when she's like 87 years old. So it's way late, but she's telling the story about how Joseph approached her as a 12 year old girl and told her that someday she would be the plural wife of Joseph. And I'm simply noting that at least in a court of law, that kind of testimony would be seen as credible. 
Well, it's certainly admissible. The credibility is up to the jury to determine and the her age and the length of time between uh, it happening allegedly and her reporting it is certainly a fact that a jury should take into account in assessing the credibility. And, and maybe the age, so maybe she's 12, maybe she's 11, maybe she's 13, but the idea that the event took place, if she's the one saying it, would seem more reliable if you, if you aren't picking apart the age. Yes. Yeah. Okay. The next one, Helen Mar Kimball. That name looks familiar. We're on number five now. Helen Mar Kimball, 7 June 1843. Let's go backwards here and just look at the dates for a moment. 5 July 1843. 9th of August, 1843, we have that uh, May date, I think, for Flora, and then we've got uh, July for uh, the Smith family. All right, so we got five, Helen Mark Kimball. We've got Sylvia Sessions. She gets her own lot. And by the way, these are all for $1,000, right? Uh, Some of them are. Some of them are not. So let's look here. $500. That's $500. Okay. Uh, one was 50 bucks. This one is. You see it before I do. I'm just trying to. Uh, it's usually up there earlier. 50. Okay. $50. Um, this one is Sylvia Sessions. We just mentioned. Here is Sarah Scott Mulholland. She is also a plural wife of the prophet Joseph Smith. By the way, May, the same day as the one for Flora and Woodworth. Let me also say, by the way, there were single women who had land deeded to them in the same time period as the rest of these. I, I tried really hard to make a connection to them being plural wives of the Joseph Smith. Um, There are a couple of them that I actually think were, and I, I won't get into that here, but I have reasons for that. I really only went with the ones that the historical research lends high probability or certainty that these are, at least as the church sees it, plural wives of the prophet Joseph Smith. Yeah, and these so, are all names I recognize. I was playing them yeah. earlier. Okay, all right. So Sarah Sarah Scott Mulholland, do you see the amount there? 50 $50. It's funny how, it's funny how dollar amounts just leap out at me from a document. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I'm glad you're seeing them. Elizabeth Buchanan Coolidge. Uh, this is another one. Is that a plural um, wife? That one uh, I didn't there, recognize. Yeah, there was uh, evidence to support that is credible that she's a plural wife of Joseph Smith. I don't know if on Wikipedia's page she is listed. Mm-hmm. If somebody else wants to go in and just find that, I'm more than willing to to sit with the data point that they're not showing that on the Wikipedia page of the wives of Joseph Smith. But in the outline, when I publish this to ex-Mormon Reddit tomorrow, I will source every one of these uh, for the ones that are in question at least. Uh, But Elizabeth Buchanan Coolidge. um, And then we get to a certain point. I just want to make sure I got the right spot here. Yeah, because we're also going to show that there's a couple of the plural wives of Hiram Smith that also get some land. Did you get The, the one from Sarah Ann Whitney? I, I, I think I have that, but I haven't gotten to that one yet. Okay. Uh, deed to Elizabeth Davis Durfee, plural wife of the prophet Joseph Smith. March 10th, my birthday. And do you see an amount there? $200. Yes. And the previous one was $100. Deed to Eliza Partridge. And this is actually the two sisters, by the way. The first part in Eliza Partridge and Emily Partridge, also Caroline Partridge, Lydia Partridge, Edward Partridge. But it is weird. Don't you find it odd that the daughters of the family are listed first? 
doesn't it seem strange that it's not to uh, Edward Partridge or, or whoever the parents are? It's like it's to these kids, and it doesn't that doesn't make sense to me. But at least noting that the Partridge sisters did get some land. Uh, what was the amount here? Did you see that one? One thousand dollars. There it is. Yes. Okay. Marinda Nancy Johnson Hyde. Look at that one. And all by herself, by the way, in the sum of $500. The deed to Lydia Dibble Granger, another plural wife of Joseph Smith. Uh, this one looks like sum of $100. On March 15th. And this is all and 1843. Let me make sure I'm saying this right. Lydia Dibble Granger is not a wife of Joseph Smith. This is a wife of Hiram Smith. And then so is Mary Fielding Smith. She's a wife of Hiram Smith. She's the first wife of Hiram Smith, right? Yeah, but uh, what's that? I mean, she's his original wife, correct? Oh, I don't think so. I think she's she's his first wife. Okay. Uh, We can look that up as well, but I'm pretty sure that she is the second wife of Hiram Smith. And uh, looks like this is the sum of $100 as well. Uh, what was the one you were saying? Let's look it up real quick. Deed, you were saying uh, Ann um, Whitney. Sarah Ann Whitney. Sarah Ann Whitney Deed. And I'll include, by the way, the document that lets you go into all these years. And the main years you're looking for really are 1842, 1843, and 1844. And you'll notice there are deeds to these folks. So there's the deed to Sarah Ann Whitney. Oh, hey, I'm not looking at that right now. I, I did some research on Hiram. Yeah. It looks like uh, on December 24th, 1837, so Christmas Eve in Kirtland, Ohio, he married Mary Fielding Smith. They had two children. In August 1843, he married and was sealed to two plural wives, Mercy Fielding Thompson. Oh, okay. Thank you. And uh, Catherine Phillips. So his first wife gets land deed, which wouldn't be that out of place. So at least noting that one of his plural wives got one and his original wife got one. And then Sarah Ann Whitney, also one of the plural wives of Joseph well, Smith. Excuse me. Why is she, why is his wife getting a land deed? I don't know. I don't know. Unless when you're compromising in the weaker part of a privileged relationship one of the reasons a woman might go along with polygamy is if her husband assured her that no matter what happened to him or if their marriage lasted, that she would have something in order to carry on life with, such as a valuable piece of land. Okay. I just That's wanted to register right that that doesn't seem usual to me, that a married yeah. woman gets a deed, uh, deed of property. I mean, she could be out there buying and flipping the properties. I don't know, but it does seem a little unusual that she would get it on her own without Hiram's name in there as well. Yeah. And Sarah Ann Whitney also has a thousand dollar piece of land. And as Ben Park pointed out and you pointed out his, his thoughts that would have been above and beyond what Sarah Ann could have afforded. Um, And it seemed highly problematic if we're going to believe that real cash transferred uh, from one hand to the other. And that was September 6th of 1842 that that deed to Sarah Ann Whitney was given. Yeah. So it appears to be, and we're not the first people to note this, but it appears to have been a practice of Joseph Smith to deed lots of property. And by that, I mean, plots, lots of property. Plots and lots of property. Yeah. Lots of lots of property to his plural wives. Yeah. 
Yep, totally. All right. And then um, we're kind of wrapping up here towards the end. I need to get kind of the live call thing here. Oh, oh, this is a thing I wanted to mention. Please. Uh, in relation to the altercation happens August 22nd, 1843. The very next day, Flora runs off to Carthage. And they have found, by the way, the actual marriage certificate. It's not based on somebody saying it happened. The marriage certificate was found in Carthage, um, which is where you'd expect to find it. But that happens on August 23rd, the marriage, right? So if you go back to William Clayton's diary, he says that Joseph Smith has meetings with Flora three times after she gets married to Carlos Gove. The dates that I wrote down and which you had up on the screen were August 26th, August 28th, and again on August 29th. And would I like to have been a fly on the wall to hear what was being discussed between Joseph and Flora in those meetings? You look pensive, my friend. Is it just, just that, because? No, ahead. no, no. So, no, no, just that um, I want to make sure I say this right. So there are multiple pieces of land being given to plural wives of Joseph Smith. Emma doesn't, again, even the church acknowledges that Emma likely didn't know some of this stuff going on and how much of it she didn't know. We're not a hundred percent sure of, but it seems like she's in the dark about a lot of it. And the sad thing with her is that when Joseph dies, she has to kind of settle the estate. And there's all of this inside fighting about who owns what and who has what. And Emma has to kind of essentially settle the books. And she would have had to have dealt with the fact that these deeds were given out and having to figure out like, oh my goodness, this one went to that person. This one went to, I, I can't imagine all the stuff she dealt with. It's no wonder she stayed behind in Nauvoo. Um, when all the saints leave that would, from her point of view, like, like God bless and good riddance. I just want to start to kind of process all the stuff that's happened to me and get as far away from it as possible so I can live a peaceful life. Um, you can't blame her for staying. No, not at all. She wanted to stay with the non-polygamy practicing Mormons instead of the polygamy practicing Mormons. Yeah. And then she marries a man who ends up having an affair and has another child away from her anyway. It, it's just a, it's a, a, tragic a life story. full of trauma and tragedy. Yep, totally. Can I also say okay. about Emma that she might have been very upset about discovering this watch with Flora because even though there had been knowledge of what was going on on Emma's part, there was it went back and forth. And it's quite possible that as of this point, they'd already had a big altercation. There's the Partridge sisters, Lori and Tracy, that Joseph Smith has already married. And now... Emma comes to the point where she's reconciled herself to Joseph Smith practicing this, this uh, plural marriage thing. And she says, okay, can I pick? Right. I, I'll, I'll go along with it. Just let me pick. And I'm going to pick the Partridge sisters and they all go, but we're already married, but we won't mention that. We'll just have a sham marriage in front of Emma. So I think that likely as of this point, she thinks that, I mean, she knows plural marriage is going on. She knows Justice Smith is doing it. She's been involved in some of it. But here, I think she's under the illusion that Joseph Smith is going to keep her in the loop going forward. She's going to be involved. She's going to be part of this. So she knows what's going on. And Joseph Smith did not honor that. He went behind her back again when he married Flora, which would cause her to be, I think, reasonably upset when she found the watch with Flora. 
Yeah, and I think even one of the Partridge sisters mentions that they didn't even know that their sister had married the prophet. So they were both in the dark about each other as well. Yeah, it's all very secret. You keep it secret, you keep it safe, you don't tell anybody about it, which results in this crazy situation that was going on in Nauvoo at the time. Yeah, and it almost feels like Oprah Winfrey. I think you're the one that kind of joked about this earlier in the week. You get a piece of land, and you get a piece of land, and you get a piece of land. Everyone gets a piece of land. Well, why should Joseph Smith be the only one getting a piece? Amen. There you go. (laughs) All right, I'm going to move on. So other interesting uh, facts, just to note, uh, Flora's marriage ceiling to Joseph happened right around the same time as Lucy Walker and Helen Mark Kimball. Uh, again, what David Bednar relayed to Tyler at the very least is much more complicated than he lets on. And we're going to have to deal with the evidence that Joseph absolutely pursued many of these women uh, to the point where he is using very manipulative tactics, such as telling people they have a short amount of time, uh, threatening people's spiritual uh, damnation if they don't go along with it. Uh, ruining Nancy Rigdon's uh, credibility when she spoke up, uh, hence the happiness letter. Um, it, it just becomes clear, Elder Bednar, that Joseph pursued these women heavily. And I don't think there's any other way to see m- much of this evidence than to understand that these were on some level intimate marriage sorts of relationships rather than adoptive child-parent relationships. Um, well, what you have to understand about that. Elder Bednar in his defense is that he doesn't have time to be studying church history so he can find out about these facts. He's too busy studying the writings of obscure sectarian Christian authors to use and plagiarize in general conference. So what I'm trying to say here is give Elder Bednar a break. Yeah, and... Um, Give Brother Joseph a break. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and to note that Elder Bednar borrowing for that talk reminded me a lot of Joseph borrowing from Adam Clark's commentary and it being the same sort of kind of thing. Direct borrowing, that is. It's yeah. a time-honored tradition in Mormonism. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to say before we get to the sad ending for Flora uh, Joseph Smith in May of 1844, what a thing it is for a man to be accused of committing adultery and having seven wives when I can only find one. By the way, if Joseph Smith was adopting people as his children, sons and daughters, or his sibling, or his, or his spiritual parents, we would have no problem with Joseph Smith going on the record. He would have no problem going on the record and going, this is what I'm doing. The only reason to keep it secret is that they are intimate marriage relationships. When he gave that quote, here were his wives as of May 1844. Emma Hale, Louisa Beeman, Zena Diantha Huntington, Presenda Lathrop Huntington, Agnes Moulton Coolbrith, Lucinda Pendleton, uh, which is Morgan Harris. These are all tons of names, so bear with me. I hope you notice the brief pauses in between each. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner, Sylvia Porter Sessions, Patty Bartlett Sessions, Sarah M. Kingsley, Elizabeth Davis, Miranda Nancy Johnson, Delcina Diadamia Johnson, Eliza Roxy Snow, Sarah Rapson, Sarah Ann Whitney, Martha McBride, Ruth Daggett Vose, Flora Ann Woodworth, Emily Dow Partridge, Eliza Maria Partridge, 
Elmera Woodward Johnson, Lucy Walker, Sarah Lawrence, Maria Lawrence, Helen Mar Kimball, Elvira Anna Cowles, Rhoda Richards, Hannah S. Ells, Mary Ann Frost, Olive Gray Frost, Nancy Maria Winchester, Desdemona Catlin Wadworth Fulmer, Melissa Lott, Sarah Scott, Phoebe Watrous, Mary Houston, Fanny Young, and Fanny Alger, which is not in there. I know there's some confusion from William Law. I think he calls her something else. Um, but anyway, and then uh, and then also my last point here is here are the wives of Joseph Smith who are under the age of 20. Fanny Elger, we believe, was 16, although some evidence shows she might have been 18. Sarah Ann Whitney, 17. Flora Ann Woodworth, 16. Lucy Walker, 17. Sarah Lawrence, 17. Helen Mar Kimball, 14. And Nancy Winchester, 14. And now we get to the sad ending, unfortunately. I think that's what Please. the church in its essay calls a carefully worded denial. Lesser <laughs> minds would call it lying. Yeah, it's also how they called di plagiarism direct borrowing. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, it's all semantics and vernacular, my friend. All right, so the sad ending here, again, to Flora. This is the 1850 census. Lucian Woodworth is noting his wife, Phoebe, his daughter, Flora, and the other two children. Uh, this is in 1850, but that same year, and again, she's an adult. She has her own piece of land. Right. She's an adult, but he's still for census records. When they come to his house, he's still noting his entire family. But that doesn't mean that she's living there. Some point in 1850, she is staying in Canesville, Iowa. And this is what we learned happened to her. Uh, sad ending to the story. That same year, Flora was staying in Canesville, Iowa, never making it to Utah. Flora passed away in Canesville around 1850. Helen Mar Kimball wrote, I never saw her again. As she died at that place, leaving two or three children, Flora would have been in her mid-20s at the time. And uh, there's, uh, there's the episode on Flora and Woodworth, gifts, deeds, and harsh measures. Any thoughts from you as we wrap up before we take some phone calls? And by the way, before you say that, 662-667-6667 or 662-MORMONS. I don't really have anything to add here, except once again, this is a, an instance of a case where you come up with a story that is interesting, but seemingly simple and direct, and it's not going to take a lot of time to get through it. And then by the time we're done with it, it has gotten much more interesting, much more complicated, and hopefully more entertaining. What I'm interested in is finding out is if Maven has anything she wants to add. Please. Thanks, RFM. I, I really don't. I think you guys covered it really well. Um, and this is, yeah, I guess just more of what the kind of stuff that we already know about Joseph, but I guess also maybe adding in more evidence to those that would want to deny that Joseph um, was a polygamist, um, which is something that always bothers me. But this is, I guess, yet more evidence um, against that. So the land deeds, the land deeds are strong evidence that something was going on, huh? Yeah. 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 Perfect. Bill, for yeah. the record, can I ask you, you've talked about the story that's related by William Clayton in his journal. Did you give a source for the story that was related by orange white? Yeah. So orange white comes from his own records. Let me find it here really quick. 
I did notice it was written in first person. I'm glad you had fun, Dan. It's great having you listening. Here we go. Doctrine and Covenants, Orange, White, History. Let's see if this is it. Yeah, so here we go. This is The Recollections of Orange White, Son of Lyman White, Autobiography, 1823 to 1903, TypeScript, BYU. Does it say that it was published in 1903? Published May 4th of 1903. And it's, you know, it's it's sort of long. He gives basically helping taking care of the family, meeting Joseph Smith, reflections on Joseph, moving to Quincy, the brethren return, settling Nauvoo, plural marriage, and there's Flora Woodworth, learning about polygamy. So he probably, I now come to the part of the story, at first doctrine, taught in private, I first knew that it was John Higby's family. So he talks about how he learned that polygamy was happening. Um, and then Flora Woodworth, learning about polygamy and that whole story. Uh, and then, of course, being called on uh, the next, his next section is going up to five or 600 miles away to do lumber. So, yeah, yeah, I wonder if he ever found that suspicious at all as he was laying awake at night in the logging camp, counting the stars glittering. Calluses on his hands. Yeah. <laughs> no shower for two weeks. Yeah, I'm sure that he, if he would go back in time, he probably would have, he probably wouldn't have given uh, Flora a mild lecture. Oh, my gosh. Look at what you got me into. Yeah. And I just want to know, we'll go to phone calls here. By the way, folks, if you do want to call in, I don't see any calls in the call bank yet. Um, but just to note this too, apologists, believers, church leaders, they do this thing and you do it too, by the way. And I know why you do it and I know why they do it, but there's this stopping as far as the evidence goes. Like you go right up to the line of the evidence and unless the evidence imposes on you that you take a less than faithful view of the church, apologists, believing historians, church leaders always give the benefit of the doubt to the faithful side of the argument. Mm -hmm. And I always see you stopping at the line too, but that's because you're a lawyer and that's what your job is to do is to see how far the evidence goes and go no further. Otherwise you end up with an objection in the courtroom. But what I want to note here is that I always try to frame it this way, which is um, to look at the evidence, and if you need to add a little conjecture to go like, hey, what's the most rational conclusion to make based on the evidence presented to you? And when you look at all the things that were presented tonight, I, I think that we end up with a lot of problems that show a lot of smoke around Joseph Smith and how he's conducting himself. And that while we have to stop shy of making any absolute conclusions, my brain will tend to go, okay, there's enough smoke here that I'm going to go ahead and say, this is the conclusion I make until, until someone shows me that that evidence isn't the strongest conclusion to make. I will, I will make the most rational conclusion, even if I have to make a small leap because all the other conclusions require even more. Right. And I think that one of the questions <laughs> you had with regard to the transfer of property by Joseph Smith to plural wives, including Flora and specifically the pocket watch that's the subject of tonight's show. The question then is, is Joseph Smith providing for his plural wives to take care of them or in at least some of these instances, because we don't know the dates when these were the watch was given, at least is this taking care of his wives, or is this perhaps some sort of inducement in order to win their affections prior to proposing to them? And either way, 
does he have the ethical right to hand out church property for his own personal wives to ensure they have some property? There's something that doesn't feel right there. Well, that's because it is problematic. Yeah. So folks have to face that sort of ethics going on. And then you, when you all of a sudden you go like, Hey, give me all the instances in which I can see that the pro the profit of the restoration has integrity issues. And I think if you and I sat here for an hour, we could list a hundred of them. And if we, right. Yeah. You would think that if this were being done on the up and up, that he is the trustee for the church owns the property, sells it in a way that's going to get full value and the funds obtained through selling the property are going to go into an account that belongs to the church and is used exclusively for church purposes, not giving out land or giving it out at substantially reduced prices as some kind of a gift. Well, for any reason, I mean, it just gets a lot more sexy and a lot more objectionable when it's talking about to plural wives, right? But for any reason to anybody, to be giving gifts of church property as the trustee would be a violation of his ethics and his fiduciary duty as the trustee. And this isn't the only issue that looks problematic for his integrity. There are at least a hundred others right behind it. Hmm. There's a few and others it, in, in yeah. and amongst all this plural marriage that's going on. Yeah. And when you add it all up, then again, it, as you said, it's just really problematic. Um, all right. If there, I'm looking here, it looks like maybe we've got one caller. Maybe they don't know the number 662-667-6667 or 662-MORMONS on your dial. We'll get you here. into the phone bank and hopefully onto Mormonism Live. Here is, I believe, uh, maybe James. James, are you on the line? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, go ahead, my friend. You're on Mormonism Live. Um, well, I was just kind of wondering earlier, I asked Nathan this as well in the chat, but um, we were talking about um, like Joe Smith's behavior and kind of like um, the judgments made on it, that it's kind of like morally wrong or whatever. And um, just kind of out of curiosity, like, you know, there's a certain standard for morality, I think. Um, that you're using to, I guess, make that judgment. I was just wondering what the standard you were using is. Okay, say that again, my friend. You said, do you want me to say the whole thing again? Yeah, yeah, well, just, yeah, just the crux of the question. Earlier, you were talking about Jeff Smith and his behavior, and you were talking about um, it being morally wrong. I don't remember what exactly you were talking about specifically, Um, but you're saying it it was morally wrong. And I was just wondering, from your point of view, or from both your point of view, like what standard are you using of morality to make that judgment that that certain thing that Joseph said? Great question. Morality? Great. So I'll, I'll speak to it in two points. One is the properties. So in the properties, the church owns the lots of land. They are to be used for church purposes. If Joseph Smith is doing it for personal reasons to ensure that his wives have uh, are taken care of well, then that to me seems like there is, especially if it's secretive, real money is being written down on the contract, but it's never real money being exchanged, and that there is a certain level of deception going on in those transfers of land because real money wasn't paid, then essentially all of those people got free land 
at the church's expense. And that seems if I'm acting as the executive director for Mormon discussion and I go take my family on a $10,000 vacation, that would be egregious and would be some sort of unethical behavior on my part. Um, it's the same thing that Joseph Smith is doing. Um, in regards to like morality around polygamy, um, we can all make the argument that if we go back in time, that there's a different standard, but we have to recognize that Heavenly Father is the is the gold standard of morality. He's the one who's sending an angel with a drawn sword. And we all know that children up until about the age of 25, their frontal cortex isn't fully developed. They can't make real, a, a human being under the age of 25 doesn't understand all the repercussions of their decision-making. And to have a heavenly father who allows his prophet to manipulate young women who start off in the relationship of being taken care of in his home as a foster daughter. And he announces to people in town, this is in regards to Lucy Walker. He announces to people in town that these are my daughters for a father in heaven to then switch that relationship to a husband wife relationship and to give Lucy Walker only 24 hours to make a decision to threaten spiritual damnation upon her for doing that. Um, I can't buy into a morality of that. Even if I allow God's morality to be different than mine, I can't make any healthy reason for why God would allow teenage girls who aren't equipped to make lifelong decisions to do the things that Joseph Smith manipulated them into doing. RFM? Yeah, I was just going to say, James, by the way, great question. I was just going to address the legal aspect. Sometimes when we talk about churches and church property and Joseph Smith and trustees, it can get kind of confusing. So let's just use you as an example, okay? And let's say that for whatever reason, maybe you're young, your parents have died, but they created a trust for you, which you cannot uh, use its property. And we'll make at least part of this real property, okay? So there's real property in trust for you. It's designated that way. That's what a trust is. And a trust has to have someone who is in charge of the trust, someone other than you. And let's just say it's me, all right? And that I've been appointed by the court to be the trustee for your trust. Now, I have an obligation under the law. And the obligation is ethical, and you can call it moral if you want, but ethical is a little bit more uh, the term that we use. My obligation is a fiduciary obligation to you. And if I were to take that trust, that property that's in the trust, which I can do because I have the power, right? I'm the guy who writes the checks. I can do whatever I want with the property and the trust. If I were to take some of that property that is in trust for you, and give it to somebody else or sell it at a substantially reduced rate below market value, what I'm doing is I am violating my fiduciary obligation to you as the trustee by getting rid of property for my benefit in a way that's harming you and reducing the value of the trust. And you're not getting anything back for it. The only way for me to do that would be okay, well, this property, I think it's a good idea to sell it. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to sell it the regular way. We'll get, get a realtor involved. We'll get bids, blah, blah, blah. We'll get cash. The cash will now go into an account that is also part of the trust and it's set aside for you. I cannot do anything to benefit myself or anyone else because you are the person that I am accountable to and the one that I owe the duty toward to preserve that trust. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense. You have a you have a moral responsibility, ethical responsibility to the group that you are doing the trust for. And if you get personal gain, as you point out, lose value for the entity that you've been trusted to handle things for, then you've done damage to them. And that is the opposite of what you're supposed to do. Yeah, it's called theft. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Do you mind if I yeah, yeah. Do you mind if I have please? One? Just, just make sure, clarify, make sure I understand it. So, yeah, James, can you can you get closer to your microphone? Wait, 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 wait one one second, my friend. I'm just, just having trouble that? hearing him, and I imagine the audience is too. If you could get a little closer to your microphone, yeah, James. You, yeah, please. If you could talk louder into either the phone or the mic. Can you hear me okay now? Is that better? No, but be be as loud as you can. Okay. Um. So you. I guess with the two different cases, one of them you're talking about property and land and stuff like that. And then the other one you're talking about um, polygamy and um, wives and all that stuff. So if I understand right, you're saying with the land ownership and all of that, that that's what he did was morally wrong based on like the standard of um, law of the land. And then with the um, like, uh, multiple wives or underage wives or whatever. Uh, you're saying that was morally wrong based on like your like like your uh, feelings about what is wrong morally in that case. Did I get that? Did I summarize that? Um, the reason that somebody doesn't make decisions for themselves up until the age of 18 is because we see people as not being capable of fully understanding their choices and science backs that up and says that a human being has certain ability to reason things out. And that doesn't really solidify itself until the mid twenties to take 14 year old girls and to manipulate them into intimate relationships when they don't have a developed frontal cortex to make those decisions. And God knows that. Maybe the 1830s don't know that. Maybe the 1840s don't know that. Maybe modern day church leaders don't know that. But Heavenly Father knows that. And if you want me to place trust in a Heavenly Father who doesn't take into his decision making the inability of teenagers to make good decisions and how easily they can be preyed upon and manipulated and coerced and pressured which we see in the historical record by how Joseph Smith treats these young girls, then I can't place faith in that sort of a God. And hence Mormonism is useless to me. Oh, so ultimately in that case, like your the standard you're using in there is what you believe Heavenly Father would think about the behavior that Joseph Smith is if, doing in that case. If God is okay with manipulating people who aren't capable of making solid decisions, then he's not a God I can place any trust in. Okay. Okay. Um, and I guess maybe Arthur would know more about this from a legal, legal perspective, but you talk about um, like the age of 18 and all of that. I don't know what, what things were like back then, and I'm not one that on the bandwagon of like, oh, things are I know. Never back then. The past is a foreign country. They yeah. do things differently there. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a, a dumb thing to say, personally. But, um, 
I guess as far as like you saying, um, things aren't totally developed until they're 25 or whatever. Is that to kind of allude that maybe it's more appropriate for someone to marry someone after they're 25 and even go past the 18 that's been set by laws today? If you're asking me personally, sure. But it, that's the, the, the society around us has deemed it to be 18 years old and that's the rule. But if it were up to me, I think major decisions should wait a few years later. Yeah. And James, as far as I'm concerned, I'm 62 years old and I don't think my brain's fully developed yet at all. (laughs) I've got a track record that would indicate that's the case is all I'm saying. Yeah. Are there any other callers? If if James is the one caller, then I'd be happy to take your next question. We got got one other, James. We're going to, we're going to let you go. I want to mention one other thing while you're on the line. Okay. This isn't directly responsive to what you've asked. But I do note it is so interesting to me that in Orange White's account, Joseph Smith sees Orange White walking down the street with Flora, right? On this beautiful day, probably the summer, it's Nauvoo, roses are in bloom, and he takes them for a ride around Nauvoo. But Joseph Smith never once tells Orange White, hey, this is my wife you're hanging out with, Ixnay on the hanging out with my eighth way, Okay. No, he takes him to the Woodworth home and he has Flora's mother, Phoebe, have the private tete-a-tete with Orange White and tell Orange White all about the situation between Joseph Smith and Phoebe's daughter, which I find absolutely fascinating. And it's also maybe another instance of this kind of thing where, I mean, when Joseph Smith approaches young women or even not so young women, about marriage frequently it's through a female intermediary. James, one last thing, just yes or no. And then we're going to let you go. Do you think it's appropriate for a grown men in their thirties to late thirties to marry 14 and 15 and 16 year old girls? Um, are we talking about like back then or currently like right now? Uh, you, have, you pick whatever I, age. I I, sound, yeah. Regardless of the laws, just uh, any I age. Because, I guess from personal experience, because like um, when I was in high school, um, I dated a girl that was um, 16 and I was 18 because I'm older. Yeah, but 37, the, uh, 37 and 14. I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's just to say that, like, technically, like, I was in the wrong legally, right? Like, I just, 18, I just want to say ask a very specific question, and it's a yes yeah. or no answer. Thirty-seven-year-old man and a fourteen-year-old girl. I would say, based on today's laws, that no, not laws. Just inside your head, appro- just inside your head with appropriateness. Is it appropriate for a thirty-seven-year-old man to marry a fourteen-year-old girl? I mean, it sounds like a yes or no because of mine. Technically, mine was wrong as well. And basically, I'd be held to the same standard as they are, no matter the age difference. Correct, Arvin? Well, that depends on if you were more than two years older than she was and whether you were engaged in sexual activity. And if so, before you say anything more about that story, I would advise you that the statute of limitations may not have run. Yeah. So let's let's just let it go, James. uh... You have a right to remain silent. I suggest you use it. But this is about what James has done. But just the question is, James, do you 
do you, regardless of laws, then or now or anything, do you think it's okay for a 37-year-old man to marry a 14-year-old girl? Yes or no? Yeah. All right. So let's take the I, last I call for the night. Question for, for members no, no. of the church still for a lot of people. And it really shouldn't be a difficult question. It's It yeah. bothers me that that is it, a it, tough question for any man to answer. And by the way, this is something I always do. It had nothing to do with just the question I was asking him. I often find apologists never want to tell you what they really think. They tell you about all the possible solutions to the problem. But the moment you pin them down to what they literally think about the issue, then you hold them to that answer. And otherwise, they get to kind of move from hill to hill. And I want to force them to pick a hill that they're going to die on. Um, anyway, all right. Next caller here is Doug. Doug, you'll be our final call for the night. Uh, what do you have on your mind, my friend? Hey, Bill. Uh, this is Doug Vincent here. Doug, how uh, you doing? You can ask me those yes or no uh, questions. Doug, do you think yeah, it's a yeah. Doug? Do you think it's okay for a thirty-seven-year-old man to marry a fourteen-year-old girl? No. No. Okay. <laughs> all right. Perfect. Okay, would you tell us about your okay, underage girlfriend in high school? Yeah, tell us about your fourteen-year-old girlfriend in high school. <laughs> I, uh, 16, but okay. answer, but All right, be, go ahead, my friend. I might be incriminated, or where <laughs> yeah. you call that? Who's the fifth? Who's the fifth? <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, I have I have two things, real quick. First of all, that plant that you showed of all those properties that Joseph Smith was was selling and handing out. What happened to all that when he died and they left? You know, did did the church? you know, sell that land? Did the individual people uh, sell that land? I think it would kind of be interesting to follow up on those deeds. You know, what happened to those deeds? Did anybody get any money out of them? You know? Uh, So that's just, that might be more of a Dan Vogel thing. But here's the other thing I wanted to... Wait a second. Wait a second. What kind of crack is that? Hey, hey, one one second. (laughs) RFM is going to attempt to answer this. And I think... I think it was a huge huge cluster is what happened as a result of this. And also, um, uh, I don't know everything that Dan Vogel knows, but I am aware of the fact that once it was noised abroad that the Saints were going to be leaving because they were being forced out, that the property values plummeted drastically and they couldn't give the property away. They couldn't sell it pennies on the dollar because everybody knows that it's going to be up for grabs here in just a few months when the Mormons leave. The only people who had value were probably the people who like Emma, who stayed behind and held on for years. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Uh, The other uh, thing I want to bring up is I did vote on the t-shirt and I think you should sell, uh, should should have more than one choice. Yeah. Have all three. Why not? Yeah. And, and they're all good. Yeah. And we, we may, yeah, we've we talked, do. yeah, yeah. We've talked a little bit about that behind the scenes. We may end up seeing if all three can be made. They're all, I think, great designs. That said, we certainly want to still crown a winner and we'll certainly do that next week. That one for sure will be made into a shirt uh, and, with Exmo shirts. And Doug, there's a reason I think that's a great idea. Cool. <laughs> and why is that i'll let you figure that one out <laughs> uh, okay all right you weren't you weren't the first one all to right. think of that. <laughs> all right have a great day all right near and 37 right, 14 is Mike. a 30, 37 and 14 is a bad idea doug 
All right. That is the, uh, that's the end of our calls. I'm going to end the call line. You'll probably hear a little beep here, but uh, there it is. I hear it. All right. Anything else from you, my friend? No, I want to say this is a great show that you've done tonight. I'm glad to have been a part of it, to have been able to do a little research and find a couple things to add a few bits and pieces here to your show. Um, and if we find out anything more from Reed Moon, then uh, if it's of substance or of interest, then I will try and remember to update the story on a later podcast. I've got to let you know that in Orange County, Florida, the sheriff's office, my request for the documents in the, um, oh, help me Derek out here, Corden. Bill. Corden. Derek Corden. Yeah, Derek Corden, Bonnie's grandson. Thank you. Um, is still open. So they apparently have been working on that for about a week. And I'm guessing there may be quite a number of documents they have to go through and redact appropriately before they respond to my request. But once that happens, I will probably announce it on my Facebook page and I'll talk with Bill about doing a show on it as soon as we can after we get those documents. And unlike the issues with BYU, we would expect the Florida police to redact appropriately. Certainly. Yeah. Totally. Awesome. Um, great. And then uh, I guess, and for James, as long as it's legal, right? <laughs> That's all that matters uh, in James's mind. What is this thing <laughs> called morality? Morality um, is little bird tweeting in tree. Yeah, it is a, it is just an idea and we get to argue ideas, correct? Right. What would be right. too young? What would be too young, RFM? Eight? Seven? How about three? Like what, like where do we draw the line? I don't know. And, you know, I don't even want to get involved in this whole discussion. Um, I think that uh, probably, oh, let me just go on the record as saying, I think it is really, really problematic for a 37-year-old man to be marrying a 14-year-old girl. How's that? <laughs>